Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. As we've gone through Philippians, we've talked about how we partner with the gospel and how that changes us. We've talked about how we partner with each other. We've talked about perseverance and suffering and how to suffer well, um, how to trust the Lord in that. We've talked about how to be marked by humility that comes from knowing Jesus and on what kind of attitudes should fill us and should should we be categorized by, characterized by. So today we're going to continue walking through Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 3, um, and we're going to learn what Paul says about the confidence that we should have. So before we get into that, I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the confidence that you give us. Thank you that we can trust in you, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would open our hearts to receive from you, God. Pray that um, you would help me to get out of the way, Lord, and that whatever you want to say to our hearts would would be spoken, and that you would stir in us, Lord, so that we could be changed by you. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. So many leaders, writers, uh, business people, entertainers have made the statement that confidence is the key to success, right? In their book, The Confidence Code, Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman write, Scholars are coming to see confidence as an essential element of internal well-being and happiness, a necessity for fulfilled life. And what is confidence? Well, if you do a Google search, you're going to come up with nothing that surprises you, right? Confidence is the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something. It's firm trust. Confidence is the state of feeling certain about the truth of something, a feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. Confidence is the internal assurance that you can make it, that things will turn out right, that you can handle whatever is coming your way. There are so many benefits of confidence that touch basically every aspect of human life. Confidence lowers stress and anxiety. It increases motivation. It leads to more successful risk-taking and more resilience when things fail. Um, Confidence makes people happier. It makes people more successful in business and social ventures. It makes people more attractive. People who are confident have a positive impact on those around them. When you are confident, it builds the confidence of everyone around you. Show of hands, how many people in here feel like they have perfect confidence? (laughs) Obviously, the the answer is no no one, right? Because no one, if you did have perfect confidence, I'm sure your hand would have shot up. I would have felt it through the online screen. But I feel like it's safe to say that we can assume that there is, confidence is an area that we can all grow in, that we all have desires to grow in, right? And people pursue being confident in a number of different ways. Many people look to their achievements, their, their accomplishments. Um, their confidence is rooted in winning and climbing the business ladder or the social ladder, getting trophies, getting good grades, getting accolades, that kind of thing. Um, Other people look to their social status to give them confidence. They like to be known as a good mother or a good father, a good employee, a good boss. Um, They like to to take confidence in the fact that they are a Christian, an American, a Democrat, a Republican. You know, they look to their jobs, like like being a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer or whatever. Some people's confidence is ruled by what other people think of them. 
When people like them and think well of them, they feel confident. But their confidence falters when there's conflict or when there's differing opinions or when people don't like them for whatever reason. But the confidence that everyone really strives for is self-confidence. That, that's the kind of confidence to, that you, where it lets you trust in your own abilities, your qualities, and your judgment. When you look up quotes on confidence, like most of the ones that you'll find will be about finding and trusting in the intrinsic value that you have, your ability to persevere, to kick butt and conquer all. Like Zig Ziglar, who said, put all excuses aside and remember this, you are capable. Or Coco Chanel, who said, beauty begins the moment you decide to be yourself. Marie Curie, who said, Life is not easy for any of us, but what of that? We must have perseverance and above all, confidence in ourselves. We must believe that we are gifted for something and that this thing at whatever cost must be attained. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. It sounds really good, right? It feels good to our heart. It sounds like, yes, yeah, I can do it. I can do this. But there's a problem with all of these ways of pursuing confidence, even self-confidence. Because as noble and heartwarming as these feel and sound, we really can't put our confidence in any of these unreliable, untrustworthy, short-lived, fleeting things. Whether your confidence is in your career or your role or your status or your relationships or even yourself— you will eventually find that there are questions in your soul that these confidences can't answer. There are aches they can't heal. There are holes they can't fill. The more you seek to draw your confidence from these various aspects of life, the more you will realize that you've come to worship them, right? You need them. They rule over you because you are looking to them to justify you, to validate you, to define you. The things, you'll find that the things that you put your confidence in make for terrible gods. You will suffocate them with your neediness, and they will crush you with their imperfections. The things you put your confidence in will ride over you like cruel and personal masters, constantly demanding your attention and management of your image, of your skills, your relationships, in order to hold up and maintain the illusion of the control and the confidence that they pretend to give you. They will continually demand sacrifices of you to prove yourself again and again and again because you will never be truly justified. You'll never be truly validated by them. It's the natural outcome of trying to create our own righteousness, to justify ourselves by what we do or what we have or who we are. Even succeeding in those things that we put our confidence in won't save us because there's nothing on earth that we can look to in order to truly give us unshakable confidence. Nothing lasts forever, and everything is subject to chaos and decay. In the movie Chariots of Fire, there's a British runner, Harold Abrahams, who has dedicated his life to running in the Olympics, getting the gold, and being the fastest, right? And before one of his most important races, he is getting a massage, and he's talking to his friend, he's getting ready for the race, and he says, I will raise my eyes, and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with only 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. 
See, he recognized that his whole life had been building up to this achievement. But what if he failed? Who would he be? Where would he go? What if he won? What's left for him to pursue? How does he define himself going forward? Running and being the best was his justification for living. It was his righteousness, right? Because no matter what you believe about moral absolutes of right and wrong, righteousness is more than that, right? There's a standard of righteousness, of justification, of rightness that you are desperately trying to live by. And you're not alone. This is not a new problem. This is the very situation that Paul is addressing in Philippians 3. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection from the dead. So a major problem facing the church in Philippi was that it had been infiltrated by the philosophy of people called Judaizers. These are people who believed that, yes, Jesus was the Son of God who came to die for our sins, that he was raised to life, and that we were given forgiveness in his name. They believed that all were welcome to follow Jesus, but that in order to truly follow Jesus and in order to truly be counted righteous, people had to follow the law given by Moses, which we call the Old Testament, right? They had to follow all of the laws that were given before, and the sign of that was circumcision. Because you see, these people, they were proud of being Jewish. They were proud of their heritage and what they had accomplished by keeping all of the Mosaic laws. They weren't ready to give all that up and let just any old nobody be counted as their equals when they didn't put in the hard work of being righteous like they did. They had the attitude of, yeah, 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 you have all that you need in Jesus, but also you need to be circumcised. The problem is that adding a but also to the gospel completely poisons and ruins the truth of the gospel. In Galatians 5.4, where the church in Galatia was experiencing the same problem with Judaizers, Paul wrote, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. It's the problem that the Israelites had all throughout the Old Testament, actually, because often 
You know, Israel had a whole huge up and down history with idol worship. But it wasn't that they were just like, oh, I don't care about God. I'm just going to worship idols. Most times it was, yeah, I will worship the Lord God, but also I'll worship the Baals. Because, you know, maybe there's stuff I'm missing from God. They would say, yes, the Lord Yahweh fulfills me, sustains me, and blesses me. But also, just in case, I'll worship these fertility goddesses and the Ashtoreths because maybe they'll cover some bases that God doesn't, ha- that God doesn't cover for me. Right? We do the same thing. Our hearts are idle factories. Wherever we answer the deep questions of our heart with, yeah, Jesus, but also, that's where we realize that we are in the same boat as the Judaizers. Because whatever your but also is, that's where your confidence truly is. That's your functional savior. That's your idol, right? Because, so what is at the center of your life? What gives you drive, motivation? What are those things that you absolutely cannot live without? The thing that will make you happy. Like we answer the question, finish the sentence of, I can't be happy unless I have, I will finally be happy when I get, I will know that I'm worth something when, or I'm worthless unless I, wherever your answer is, Jesus, but also you've revealed one of the idols of your heart. And Paul knew all of this because he had experienced it firsthand. So like it's one thing to be an armchair quarterback sitting on a Sunday morning and criticize Baker Mayfield and be like, ah, he should have done this or that or the other thing. It's a different thing entirely if you're like a top-rated quarterback, like a Tom Brady or a Joe Montana, and you're like, yeah, I watched the game, and here's some pointers that, you know, Baker Mayfield could have done, right? And Paul had all the credentials that the Judaizers value. He wasn't some Gentile off in the corner being like, yeah, you guys are being too righteous and stuck up. You shouldn't let that go. No, he was the gold star standard of all of these things, right? He was a pure blood Jew through and through. So if you want to be proud of your heritage, he could trace his heritage, his ancestry back to Abraham, right? He knew which tribe he was in. His mom and his dad were both Jews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to following the law of Moses, you want to get excited about following the law? Well, well, Paul was a Pharisee. And like, you know, nowadays we think of Pharisee, we hear bad things. But in that day, Pharisees, they were like the Olympians of law following. They were the gold standard of righteousness. If you were a Pharisee, people knew you were serious about the Bible. You were serious about the law of God and the law of Moses. He was so zealous to preserve the ways of Moses that when he heard about this new Jesus thing coming about, he was filled with zeal and he went around from town to town grabbing those people and throwing them in jail. Like, you will stop perverting my ways, right? He followed every law to the letter and passed the letter in many respects. Paul checked every one of the boxes that the Judaizers put their confidence in. He had a lot of the reasons to be confident in his status and achievements more than most, probably more than all of them. And that's precisely why he knew and was able to say that they were worthless, Paul knew firsthand that the confidence he had in his credentials and his accomplishments did not lead to life. He realized that all those things that gave him confidence were unable to fulfill his soul's needs. They had the same value as a load of filthy, poop-filled trash. Because that's what that word garbage or rubbish in your Bibles, that's what it like, more directly translates into. Paul says, I counted them all like poop. In order to gain a true confidence through Jesus Christ, Paul had to let go of his hope in the things that gave him confidence. 
Because when you hold on to your own righteousness, your own ways of justifying yourself, it cuts you off from Christ. It alienates you from his grace. Many of us feel like we're pretty well off. We're pretty good people. And the reason we feel that way is because we've established our righteousness in something other than Jesus and in something other than God's perfect standard. We're like the church that Jesus spoke to in Revelation 3.17. He said, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're really wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's what our righteousness looks like to God. That's what our own attempts to have confidence in ourselves or in our jobs or in our families or in our relationships, that's what that looks like to God. It's completely worthless, right? But Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, you suck, get over it. He he invites you to recognize your need so that you can come to him to be filled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way to experience all that Christ has for you is to realize that you have nothing without him. So here is the secret of unshakable confidence, putting all of your stock in Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that you could not, and his death swallowed all of your sins, all of your failures. Now, through his resurrected life and through faith in him, we are given the righteousness of God, the ultimate righteousness, full justification, complete validation. Instead of building confidence based off of uncertain, temporary people and circumstances, this confidence is built on the unchanging, eternally loving, eternally good, eternally powerful nature of Jesus. This is a confidence that will not fail because it's based on who Jesus is and what he has done. So the point is not to say that your career is bad or your family is worthless or your reputation means nothing, right? The point is to realize that they are nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. The more you recognize the infinite worth of Jesus and for your everyday life, and then also for eternity after, the more easily, the more readily you will be able to let go of what you used to cling to for confidence. Paul was easily able to count his former life and former sources of confidence as poop trash because he had put his confidence in someone far, far greater. And it wasn't simply that he put his confidence in Christ. He put his whole self in Christ. He said, I, have gained, I want to gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In Colossians 1:29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's identity was so wrapped in Jesus that he no longer had any kind of self-confidence. He had Christ confidence. Even when he would list his own achievements, he would speak confidently based not on his own strength, but in the reliable, unwavering, unfading strength of Jesus Christ to continue carrying him on. When he was faced with uncertain situations, he could stand confident, not thinking like, oh, I can make this, I can be resilient, I can do this. No. 
he thought he knew that the God who had been with him thus far would never abandon him. He would continue to carry Paul and give him the strength and work in him and give him grace and all that he needed until every work that needed to be finished was finished. There is nothing and no one else that we can trust with this kind of confidence. So obviously I have expectations for my marriage, right? To be confident in my wife. But I can't really know how faithful my wife will be in loving me in the future, right? I love my children and that gives me a source of confidence. I'm confident that they're good kids and they're going to grow up to be good kids. But I can't guarantee that my children will love the Lord, be well-behaved, or even safe. I can't control that, right? I don't know if my job will continue to be fulfilling. I can't even know if my own body will continue to be capable in the future. Like, it's already starting to betray me, right? So I can't even put my confidence in my own self. I, don't, can't, I, I can't be confident in the kind of man I will be or if my character will stand the test of time. But... I can be confident that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I can be confident in his strength to hold me up, to pick me up, and to carry me to where I need to go. That he will never leave me or forsake me. That he will always be for me. He will always forgive me. He will always delight in me. He will always count me righteous. I never have to prove myself to Jesus. He gives me the confidence. So real quick... I want to run through three practical ways that Paul mentions about how we put and keep our confidence in Jesus Christ and not in our flesh. So guys, get ready. This is one of those cute things where it's like, oh, number one, number two, number three. I feel like I usually don't get to do those, but I feel like God lined it all up. So there's three looks that we're going to do. Number one is you look up. Paul starts the section of a letter for Philippians 3.1 with a command to rejoice in the Lord. Now, it must be something that he said often because he says, well, you know, it's no trouble for me to say this again, even though this is the first time in the Philippians letter that we have where he said, rejoice in the Lord. So this is something that Paul said to them constantly when he was with them, so much so that they would like roll their eyes like, okay, Paul, we get it, rejoice in the Lord. Um, But Paul makes it clear that the reason why he continually reminds them and admonishes them and drones on and on and on about rejoicing in the Lord is that rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for them. It protects them. To rejoice in the Lord is to rejoice in who he is, his nature. It's looking into the word of God and to enjoy the beauty of his truth and his light and his grace and goodness and and all of God's glory in the face of Christ. It's spending time with him in prayer because you rejoice in the ability and the opportunity to spend time with the creator of the universe. You revel and relish the opportunity to pour your heart out to him, like the Bible invites us to. It says, pour your hearts out to him because God is your refuge. To rejoice in the Lord is to celebrate him and what he's done, not only in the world around you, but specifically in you for you, through you, with you, right? That God is always doing things, giving you things, blessing you, and doing work inside you to make you more like him, to bring you more into more full life. And rejoicing in the Lord means recognizing that fact. And back in that movie, Chariots of Fire, there's another runner. His name is Eric Liddell. Unlike, I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it, so 
sorry. Uh, unlike Harold Abrahams, who looked at the race at the time when he justified his whole existence, right? His whole confidence was in running and being fast. I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. Eric Liddell says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you see the difference in what it means and when, what rejoicing in the Lord does to even these things that we could put our confidence in? Because, you know, long story short, Eric Liddell was the fastest. He was faster than the other guy. But that's not where he took his pride in. That's not what his confidence was in. His confidence, his joy were in the Lord. So much so that when there was a race, an opportunity, his best event was going to be on a Sunday. And he was like, Sunday's the Lord's day. This is the Olympics, I know. And this is what I've been training for, but God comes first. I'm not going to run. The prime minister said, dude, you got to run. This is like you, the UK, you've got to represent. And he was like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. And so he ran a different race that, he wasn't, that wasn't his like standard best race. And he still was able to get the gold because he was not running for himself. He was running to rejoice in the Lord, to just take joy in what God had given him. Um, rejoicing in the Lord also protects us from making our blessings into our confidence because our focus is continually turned to praise him. It protects us from giving ourselves the credit for our achievements because we intentionally rejoice not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Paul didn't say, I worked hard because that's the kind of person I am. Even though he was that kind of person. Paul's a hard worker. That's how God made him. And so he chose to focus on that second part. God made him the kind of person who works hard. So when he would tell people, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but it was the grace of God that worked in me. Paul was able to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord also protects us from rebelling against him by grumbling and complaining. It keeps us with the right perspective, even in grief, because it allows us to fixate on the loving, good, pure, wise, powerful God who is guiding us and walking with us and weeping with us and holding us close instead of focusing on the negative circumstances around us. So look up and rejoice in the Lord. Number two is look out. The very next thing Paul says after his command to rejoice in the Lord is to look out for those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, those of the circumcision, right? The Bible teaches very emphatically that you have an enemy of your soul, a tempter, an accuser, Satan, who has an evil plan for your life that he is desperately trying to work out. He's desperately trying to take you down. Now, if you're a believer, if Jesus Christ li lives in you, you've got the, the spirit, the all-powerful spirit of God inside of you. Satan doesn't actually have any power or authority over you, right? But he is masterfully deceptive and extremely skilled at coating his poisonous lies in honey and just getting you to swallow them for your own self. He can't make you take the poison, but he can trick you into thinking that it's good. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But James 4.7 promises us that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. It doesn't say resist the devil and you will win. It says resist the devil and he will run away because he can't stand up to the Jesus in you. Because Jesus defeated and defanged Satan when he triumphed on the cross, Satan is an enemy that goes from being deadly to meaning deadly as soon as we recognize that he's at work, as soon as we resist him and turn to Jesus. 
But Satan is not the only reason to look out. Because you also have to look out because in your flesh and my flesh, there still lurks the traitor of our old self. We have a sinful tendency to want to create idols, right? Because we want to put our confidence in things that feel more under our control. God is beautiful, but he's also untamable. And sometimes we don't like that lack of control. So instead of turning to Jesus and not knowing where he's going to go, we'll put our confidence in something that we can manage. Many times I've torn down an idol in my heart, like my pride in, to use a goofy example, I like to be loud. I'm usually the loudest person in any room. And it went from being something that just was true about me to something that I was like, <laughs> I'm always the loudest. You can hear me coming down the street. It's goofy, right? But I had pride in that. Um, and so I moved my pride. You know, God was like, dude, you're being dumb. Stop it. So I stopped having, putting my pride in that kind of silly thing. And I'm like, okay, Good. Confidence is not in that. And then I, would dis- I discovered that my pride was being a nice person. Because people would say, oh, Jason, you're so nice. I just love how you're so positive and happy all the time. And I wasn't happy all the time. But then I felt like, oh, I should be happy all the time. And when I would feel down, I would try to be like, no, no, no. I've got to put on a happy face. No one can see me sad because I'm the happy guy. Right? My confidence shifted from the one thing I'm paying attention to, and it just built another idol behind me. So we have to look out because we're constantly going to have to knock down an idol, turn around, knock down another idol, turn around, knock down another idol, because we just desperately want to be our own gods. So number two is look out. Number three is look ahead. Elite athletes visualize their performance ahead of time. They will eventually, or they will mentally make the jump throw the pass, run the plays, run the race again and again in their minds before they ever even reach the field. Keeping the goal in mind and visualizing what it takes to get there prepares them not only mentally, but scientists have discovered it physically, literally physically prepares them for the task that they're going to do. Paul's goal line, his motivation for striving and yearning to be with Christ and all of what Christ had for him, his motivation was for attaining the resurrection, the suffering and enduring even death was to quote, by all means attain to the resurrection of the dead. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about the end, when Jesus comes back to bring all those who believe in him home. Paul wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, which is at work in us currently, right? He wanted to share in the sufferings of Jesus, even becoming like him in death, because he was visualizing as best as he could the glory that is waiting for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because here's something that I feel can't be said enough. You are not going to be fully satisfied by Christ in this life. Becoming a Christian is not going to solve all of your internal aches and longings. In fact, it might even increase them. Because once you taste and see how good and true and perfect and right life is in Christ— once you get that taste of those, those resurrection glimpses where you got Christ's power and kingdom burst into the world, it's going to stir up. It might stir up a restlessness with the way the world is the rest of the time. A growing disgust for your own sin, a longing to get a fuller meal of what you just sampled, a hunger for the consummation of the marriage of Christ and, his, and the bride, his church. I feel like 
any of, any of you who've ever been engaged or thought about being engaged know this, right? It's great to be engaged. It's, you get a taste of what it's like. You maybe get some kisses, some whole handhelds, all those things. You get those butterfly feelings. But it's not the same as being married. And when you're engaged, the whole purpose of being engaged is to be excited about getting married, right? You want to get to that point. And in the same way, like right now, this is the engagement stage of life. Like you are going to taste the beauty and the love and the joy of having your confidence in Christ. But it's not going to fulfill you because that doesn't go, come until the end. That doesn't come till we are finally fully united with Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now it's like looking through a glass dimly, but then it'll be like seeing him face to face. Right now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. But because we know that that resurrection is a certainty, we can put our confidence in Christ by looking ahead every time we are met with the brokenness of this world, every time we share in the sufferings of Jesus, every time we get a taste of the glorious power of his resurrection, every time our hearts leap with a deeper sense of communion with him. So where is your confidence? What do you look to in order to define who you are, to justify and validate your existence? So at the end of this, we're about to end in, in like a couple minutes, I want you to take a minute and actually ask God to reveal to you what you, what you put your confidence in. And where, where are the places in your heart where you've put idols? Because Jesus will help you tear them down. He wants to do that. We don't have to trust in our own ability to make it. We don't have to trust in our status or our reputation. Our confidence doesn't depend on our strengths and it does not falter with our weaknesses. Our confidence is in Jesus, who saw us at our absolute worst and loved us still, who never stopped loving us and never will. In Jesus, who, was, who will always be there to strengthen us, to uphold us, to lift us up, and to delight in us. Our confidence is in Jesus, who is powerful enough and wise enough and faithful enough and eternal enough and loving enough that nothing can shake, can shake him, which means that nothing can shake us either. So let's pray. God, Jesus, we thank you that you have promised to be working in us and that you will carry that work on until we are fully united with you. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the different idols that we've put our confidence in. Help us to shake those things, Lord, to abandon them because we know that those things don't have true life. Lord, help us to look up and rejoice in you and in who you are, and in what you've done for us, and what you do in us and through us. Help us, God, to look out and to watch out for Satan, protect us from his schemes and his lies. Help us to not betray ourselves by erecting our own idols. And Lord, help us to look ahead to the glorious day where you will bring us all into your home, into your arms, where we can see you face to face, where all of our imperfections will finally be washed away, all of our pain will finally be healed, and we'll be able to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.